Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for attending on what is promising to be a rainy night, um, but not just here, out west where the rain might actually be useful. Uh, but rather than talk about things that are rainy and gloomy, we thought we'd talk about economics, you know, just get everyone really excited. And the question for tonight's event is, does inequality matter? Which is, an, it's an interesting phrasing of the question because I think the answer is almost certainly yes. The, the better and perhaps more important framing of this question is not does inequality matter, but should in inequality matter? And what types of inequality should matter? And I think when we talk about these issues, one of the things that we're almost always reminded is that the ideas of equality and fairness go together so closely. The rich should pay their fair share, people in favour of redistribution argue, because that will allow society to be more equal and of course more equal is better. It's a view of equality based on the idea the only fair outcome is one where everyone gets an even share. Instinctively, this has a very powerful resonance. It, it, and it's not surprising that that resonance exists because that's what we're taught from a very young age. And it's interesting because I have a two-year-old daughter, so I get to see that interaction, the first interactions of sharing and fairness up close. And it's interesting because children, as any of you who are parents will know, they don't share instinctively. Sometimes they do. Mostly they don't. They have to be taught this idea of fairness and this idea of sharing. And if they see another child playing with one of their toys, they'll almost always try and take it away from them. Not because they want to play with it themselves, because they don't want someone else to have what they have. Now maybe this says something about us as a species. Maybe it says something about taking moral cues from two-year-olds. The point, however, is not to justify selfishness in infants or indeed selfishness in adults, but to note that our understanding of fairness is not as immutable as we might think. There's been a couple of key reports that really brought together tonight's event and it's what's brought our speakers here. And I put together an op-ed um, based off the one, the Productivity Commission, which Jonathan is, is here talking about this evening. And one of the parts, the key elements of the, the piece that I wrote was about how the ideas of poverty and inequality are so intertwined. And that a lot of the time people justify measures to combat supposed inequality by using language to target poverty, when in fact what they're proposing does very little of the sort. And in part that's because of a very flawed definition of poverty based on the idea of relative income inequality rather than the idea of deprivation. And I think it's a very important distinction when we talk about does inequality matter? Because in a world where government budgets are constrained, where we don't have an infinite amount of money or resources, focusing on inequality will inevitably take the focus off poverty. Which brings us, I suppose, to um, our excellent speakers, for which we definitely do not have 
any poverty. Jonathan Koppel has been a commissioner at the Productivity Commission since July of 2011. He's an economist with extensive international and domestic experience, advising governments on macroeconomic investment, energy, social, environmental and regulatory policy. Prior to his appointment at the PC, Jonathan was head of the OECD G20 Sherpa office and he's held senior management positions at Treasury and the Reserve Bank and he started his career, of course, at Commonwealth Treasury. Melinda Salento has been the chief executive of CEDA, which is the Committee for the Economic Development of Australia, for 12 months now. She's also a non-executive director at Woodside and Australian Unity and co-chair of Reconciliation Australia. Melinda is a member of NAB's Advisory Council on Corporate Responsibility, as well as a member of the Parliamentary Budget Office Panel of Expert Advisors. She was previously a commissioner at the Productivity Commission um, and also worked at the BCA. And last but not least, my colleague Robert Carling is a senior fellow here at the Centre for Independent Studies. His work has focused on, among other things, fiscal policy, taxation and federalism. Uh, prior to joining the CIS, Robert was an executive at the New South Wales Treasury and he's also had positions at the Commonwealth Treasury, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Our three distinguished experts will give a short address on some of the key aspects of tonight's topic. Um, then we're going to have a discussion about some of the issues that have come out in the policy debate and things that we think are really important to focus on. Um, then we're going to open for audience questions, so please get your uh, thoughts in order there. Um, and then we'll have some more of the excellent wine and cheese spread. But without further ado, I'd like to pass it over to Jonathan, who has, in addition to his excellent speech, some fantastic slides for us. So thank you. Thank, thank you, Simon, for that introduction. I did bring along with me some copies of the abridged version of the report, which I'll leave here on the front chair. Um, and they'll be available on a first-come, first-served basis. <laughs> and I've got a few slides, because I think talking about what's actually taking place in terms of trends in inequality, poverty and disadvantage, you get a much better idea when you look at, uh, look at the pictures. Does inequality matter? Well, I think for a serious discussion on that question, it is first necessary to have a good idea of uh, what's happening in terms of trends in inequality, poverty and disadvantage today and how we've got there. And that's precisely um, <clears throat> the contribution, the modest contribution that the PC's recent report seeks to make, and hence its title, Rising Inequality, question mark, a stock take of the evidence. <clears throat> now what we've done is bring together and take stock of the latest and most complete set of evidence measuring the level and trends of inequality, poverty and disadvantage in Australia. The report contains many insights and some of them are quite different from popular perceptions. So I thought to set the scene for the, tonight's discussion, uh, it would be helpful to take you through a selection of these findings. And let me begin um, with some of the context and also the motivation uh, for the study, which I think is a similar motivation for tonight's discussion. Now, as you know, Australia has clocked up an unprecedented 27 consecutive years of uninterrupted economic growth. And that has prompted many to ask, how have the benefits from growth being shared. 
And this slide shows how sustained growth is delivered for the average Australian household in every income decile, significantly improved living standards. And this is what distinguishes Australia from most other developed countries. It is certainly in stark contrast with the United States and the United Kingdom, which experienced much weaker growth. But as we also know, income growth is not the same as inequality. And with such patterns of income growth, it is not clear from looking at this slide what the impact on overall measures of inequality are. Not, slow, not so with, I'll skip that one, not so with this slide. Um, it shows measures of inequality using the Gini coefficient, which is a standard measure looking at the overall distribution of resources. And it informs our bottom line conclusion that inequality has risen slightly over recent decades. Now this is most evident with respect to the distribution of wealth and consumption, as you can see on this slide. But the trend in income inequality is more contested territory. And it's income inequality that's most often spoken about when one talks about inequality. Here you can see that the Gini coefficient derived from the ABS data, the blue line, reveals a small upward tick. However, Hilda data uh, shows no trend change in inequality since the early 2000s. Now one could easily get distracted dissecting the various reasons for these differences, but the, this would really blur the bigger picture, and it's the point that I'd like to make, is that just looking at the distribution of income in isolation gives you a lopsided view of inequality. Now a few examples can illustrate why. Um, Many retirees live on low incomes, for example, but they have high wealth. There are also many young adults with higher consumption than income and little wealth. And income patterns alone don't capture the importance of in-kind transfers from government, such as health, education and government housing. And this is why our approach deliberately eschews the specific and often self-serving use of any one measure of inequality. Now another reason why commentary on income inequality is contested territory is because the data reveals no uniform trend. It varies over time and sometimes in unexpected ways. We were surprised, for example, to discover the ABS data since the GFC shows a decline in income inequality. In fact, most of the uptick in income inequality over the past 27 years occurred during the mining boom in, when wages growth was relatively strong. And this reminds us that growth is no guarantee against a widening disparity between rich and poor. Now international comparisons provide yet another perspective on the level of inequality in Australia and the scale of any increase. And this slide shows how income inequality in Australia is close to the OECD average. We also know that Australia's distribution of wealth is relatively equal compared to other nations. Among 28 OECD countries, Australia ranks eighth most equal as measured by the Gini coefficient of wealth. Now the fact that levels of inequality are so different among developed countries strongly hints at the scope for policies, institutions and political environments to shape inequality. Indeed, a further clear message from the data is that Australia's tax and transfer systems substantially reduce income inequality. Relative to other OECD countries, 
Australia redistributes less income, but we do a much better job targeting this redistribution to low-income earners. Overall, our progressive tax and highly targeted transfer system lower the summary measure of income inequality by about 30%. So that's going from the orange line down to the dark green line. I mentioned earlier government-funded services such as health, education and public housing. These have an additional equalising effect. And when these in-kind transfers are included in a more expansive measure of consumption, inequality is about 30% again lower than that for disposable household income. So that's the blue line you can see on the bottom. And the reason for this is because people with low incomes receive the largest amount of in-kind transfers. Now there's been no material change in these equalising effects in the past 30 years, but there's nothing inevitable about them either. So far, the inequality measures that have been considered give a snapshot of the distribution at a particular point in time. And while they show a widening gap between rich and poor, that doesn't mean the rich and the poor households at the beginning and at the end of the period are the same households. And this distinction is important. And it's why our report also looks at economic mobility, if you like, the gauge of whether the rich always remain rich and the poor always poor. And it matters because a society with a low level of mobility can erode the foundations of economic growth and give rise to feelings of social inclusion. Mobility prospects are also an important determinant of life satisfaction and well-being. So how does economic mobility stack up in Australia? Well, we concluded that there's both good news and some bad news. The good news is that life course mobility is high in Australia. Now this slide shows that those who were in the top income decile at the beginning of the century are now distributed across all of the deciles. And three quarters of the people in the top income decile today were not there 15 years ago. And we also looked at the movement from the bottom and the middle deciles and a similar picture emerges. You can see there, those that were in the bottom decile are now distributed across all of the deciles. The same holds for the middle decile. And in fact, almost everyone moves across the income distribution through the course of their lives. To give a few examples that come out of this messy chart, over the 16-year period, the average Australian was classified in five different income deciles. Only 1% of people remained in the same decile over the whole period, and 9% of the Australian population spent time in both the top and the bottom income decile. Now it's things, life events such as transitioning from education into work, career advancement, household formation, having children, divorce, retirement, they underpin much of these observed trends in economic inequality. Now I mentioned some bad news um, and that bad news um, is the fact that we did find that life course mobility at the ends of the distribution, of the top and the bottom, tend to be stickier than the middle. And by stickier, I mean that households in those top and bottom deciles were the most likely to be in the same decile at the beginning and at the end of the period. 
And that's of particular concern because low mobility at the bottom typically extends beyond earnings to other dimensions of well-being, such as educational attainment and health outcomes. Moreover, it may be symptomatic of lower quality of opportunity. Now, to be sure, some stickiness at the ends of the distribution is to be expected, and that's for technical reasons that I won't get into. But how much stickiness is too much? There's no consensus on how much matters, but international benchmarking provides a basis for comparisons. Relative to the United States, for example, economic mobility in Australia is higher overall and less sticky at the tails. And a similar pattern of income mobility holds across a broader range of OECD countries. So our way of summing it up is that many Australians experience economic disadvantage at some stage in their lives, but for most of us it is temporary. And for this group, sustained economic growth and reliable access to employment will continue to be the source of new opportunities. But there's another group of Australians that experience entrenched economic disadvantage. They're stuck at the bottom end of the mobility ladder and are less able to embrace new opportunities. Now, disadvantage is a multi-dimensional concept. Um, it's not just about, it's about impoverished lives and it can take the form of low economic resources or poverty and inability to, far, to afford the basic essentials for an acceptable standard of living also known as material deprivation, or being unable to participate in the normal economic and social activities in our, in, of their community, also known as social exclusion. And we consider disadvantage through each of these lenses. And this slide sorry, shows our estimates based on the relative poverty metric, the one that Simon mentioned in his introductory remarks. It's the measure we use most often in the report and as you can see, there are major differences in the level between the various estimates. But in terms of trends, and with the exception of private consumption poverty, they've basically fluctuated around their mean. And to some extent, that's to be expected. So despite 27 years of uninterrupted economic growth, unemployment stabilising to a lower level, and significant redistribution of income, about 9% of Australians live on very low incomes. And that translates to about 2.2 million people. But of course, this number uh, is a bit misleading. It includes many people for whom low incomes have an explanation that does not warrant a policy response. I'm thinking of students, for example, in part-time jobs uh, or small business operators uh, building their capital. It also captures all spells of poverty regardless of their duration. And this slide shows that short-term spells in income poverty were by far the most common, with around 60% of people exiting income poverty after one year and a further 18% after two. However, we also observed that significant poverty reoccurrence. So of all of those who moved out of income poverty over the period, a little more than half later fell back into poverty. But once you account for all these factors, the number of households that are experiencing protracted poverty shrinks, but still accounts for a significant proportion of the population. We estimate this number to be about 3%, or roughly 700,000 people. 
that have been in poverty for at least the last four years. Now, it's people living in single-parent families, the long-term unemployed, people with disabilities or other long-term health conditions that are particularly likely to experience protracted income poverty. And for people in these circumstances, there is an elevated risk of economic disadvantage becoming entrenched as well, which limits the potential to seize economic opportunities or develop the skills with which to overcome these conditions. And these risks are particularly elevated for children living in jobless households, which is a group that has stood out among the multiple measures of inequality and disadvantage. So when we launched our report at the Press Club a few weeks ago, we said that the issues facing the entrenched disadvantage are much more complex. And we went on to suggest that policy efforts should focus on better understanding this group and that policies could be much more adaptable and targeted to individual disadvantage. Thank you. I'll do a bit of XPC tag teaming. Um, thanks for the invitation, it's great to be here. Uh, can I just start by acknowledging that we meet on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects uh, to them for their custodianship of land, culture and tradition. Um, I'm just going to whip through some key high-level points and hopefully leave plenty of time for conversation. Um, not surprisingly, CETA did a, a research report earlier this year, probably about three or four months ahead of the PC's report, and actually a lot of the conclusions were similar. Um, one of the things that we wanted to do was to try to unpack what the data was saying about inequality, given that since the global financial crisis, it seems to be something that's attracting a lot more attention and focus uh, and commentary in the media. And so we, um, like the PC, wanted to have a look at the data and see what it was saying and to try to get our heads around that. But the other thing we wanted to do was to touch uh, more directly on some of the things that Jonathan just spoke to at the end of his um, comments around the inequality of opportunity um, and how we're seeing that. And we touched also on um, some themes around intergenerational inequality. I'm not going to talk to that too much tonight, but there's an interesting chapter in there which has some conclusions which were probably surprising for some people. Um, and we also wanted to start a conversation about um, trying to get ahead of the curve, if you like, around what the potential impacts of technological change are. Um, and whether we think that this is, has some implications for inequality in how we think about it and, and literally trying to get ahead of the curve rather than waiting for the inequality numbers, which are in a sense a backward-looking um, look, uh, you know, take on what's happened, although acknowledging Jonathan's point that if it becomes entrenched, then it does give you a, a, a prediction of what may happen in the future. So let me just uh, quickly run through some of the observations. So same sort of results. Inequality hasn't worsened. Um, you know, we, we weren't surprised by that. I will, we were having a quick conversation before we came out here around the, the fact of the matter, which is, is being reinforced by a number of pieces of research, and the perception of the matter. And so let me just talk also very quickly about a piece of work that we did subsequent to the inequality report, which was a survey of, economic attitu of attitudes to economic growth and development. So we surveyed 3,000 people around the country and asked them how they felt they'd benefited from 27 years of economic growth. Um, and whether inequality mattered to them. And the short answer is, notwithstanding Jonathan's chart about income growth, the vast majority, well, the majority of people do not feel that they have personally benefited from economic growth. Okay? They, more than, to be, you know, for, as an example, baby boomers, 50% of baby boomers said they had not benefited from economic growth or did not know whether they had or not. 
Now, you can shake your head and you can ask why that is. You know, there may be multiple reasons, but the fact of the matter is if we are going to keep talking about economic growth agendas um, that deliver prosperity, that's not resonating with people out there because they don't feel that they have connected to that in the way that we're saying that they have. Um, the other interesting takeout is notwithstanding the trends, 80% um, of people think that the level of inequality as ma measured by the, the gaps between the richest and poorest is too uh, great. So fully 80% of people, that number is over 70% from memory for every uh, cohort of every income bracket, every demographic cohort, it is a strongly entrenched view. Um, so again, we can debate the science of it, but that we have to be mindful of what the perception is out there on these things. Um, we did also talk a bit about absolute poverty. We didn't get into it to the same extent. We did acknowledge that for people who are long-term unemployed, um, which is a big chunk of people on New Start benefit and people who are on unemployment benefits, they are living in absolute poverty. Um, and we've joined the campaign around lifting the rate on New Start because on almost any metric that money is not significant enough to allow you to live a life in dignity and decency and pull yourself out of unemployment, particularly if you've been unemployed for uh, two years or more. Um, so if I turn to uh, inequality of opportunity, um, one of the things that we did um, highlight was that um, where you live and what your parents' education level is still does matter in terms of your educational outcomes. Um, so low socioeconomic schools compared to high socioeconomic schools, the difference there can be three years of education across all subjects by the time you finish school. Um, low so socioeconomic schools are struggling in terms of the curriculum they offer. Low socioeconomic schools are struggling in terms of their ability to attract good teachers and resources and there is a divide geographically as well. Um, in our view, this does matter. Um, it matters in terms of future opportunities and whether that translates to income or not. It does pertain to your ability to participate in the economy and society more broadly. Um, so that's an issue that we flag. Um, geography matters. Um, we call reference it in the, in the context of postcode inequality. Here in New South Wales, 37% um, of postcodes, uh, sorry, 37 absolute postcodes account for over 50% of the measured disadvantage across a range of indicators, including unemployment, domestic violence, crime, disengaged youth. So where you live matters. Moving to a nicer place matters. Um, now we can debate this, and, uh, but I'll put it out there as a question for us as a society of whether or not we think there is a, a role or responsibility um, to try to address those issues. Now people will talk about home factors and your parental factors, but school matters. School and policy matters. If you improve um, your schooling and the quality of schooling, it does actually shift the educational outcomes for low SES students. Um, so that's something else that we, um, we called out. Um, just very quickly, um, looking at the issue of technology, this was more an area we wanted to sort of explore and start flagging some issues that we think people need to be paying attention to. You're already seeing, com seeing conversations around the gig economy, portfolio work, however you want to describe it. We do think there are some issues there that need to be considered around social safety nets. Some of these things are already being talked about. But also issues around will people have the same access to finance? Um, if you don't have a steady income, if you've got a portfolio of jobs, will you have access to housing? Uh, will you have, um, over your lifetime, the capacity to build a superannuation balance that is going to give you um, some notion of quality of life and retirement? These are the things we think we need to be looking at now. Um, if we join the dots on uh, low SES schools, 
um, and think about access to the sorts of skills and technologies that you are going to need to participate in the future workforce. Um, are kids in low SES schools getting access to those things now in a way that will enable them to participate in the future of work in 10 years' time? Um, really important questions, we think. Uh, and then finally, some of the technologies, if you look at algorithms, artificial intelligence, we already know um, there's not a lot of transparency around these things. We're not trying to say be doomsayers about this, but we do know that those things can entrench bias as well uh, and bias against in, uh, disadvantaged people. And we've seen that particularly uh, in examples in the US. And we think it's something that we need to be looking at and thinking about, mainly from the perspective of transparency, uh, but actually understanding how these things can play out in our own society all from the perspective of getting ahead of it rather than in 10 or 15 years' time looking at some different trends on the chart and looking back and thinking, wouldn't it have been great if we'd been talking about these things earlier? So uh, hopefully a bit of um, conversation started there. Thank you. Well, how, how should public policy respond to uh, inequality? That's the issue. Uh, now, no government in its right mind would set out to create inequality as a policy objective, let's face it, certainly not in a democracy at least. But uh, does that mean that inequality is a bad thing that should be eradicated? I think not. If you accept that markets are the best way to organise economic activity and to maximise average living standards, as I think most people here would believe, then you have to accept that there will be, you have to ex expect that there will be a degree of inequality. It is an essential feature of a market-based economic system in which differences in talent, effort and luck result in wide disparities in income and wealth. It is part of what greases the wheels of a market economy. But democrat, democratic societies have also decided to moderate the inequality generated by free markets. And Australia, as Jonathan's uh, graph showed, Australia does a lot of that, as, um, as all of the uh, Western democracies do. But the degree of moderation depends on value judgments and is subjective. But something that should constrain anyone's notion of the correct degree of, in, of moderation of inequality is the trade-off between equity and economic efficiency. I was, as an economist, I was always brought up to think that there is a trade-off between equity and efficiency, or in, in this context, between uh, inequality and uh, ec economic growth or average living standards. You can have as much equality as you like, but it will be at the cost of lower economic growth and lower average living standards, perhaps so much lower that even those benefiting from the greater equality are worse off than under a less equal regime. I think this is what it tends to be lost in a lot of the current public discussion of inequality. 
this balance between equity and economic efficiency. Now, in recent years, there has been uh, some attempt to deny the existence of this trade-off. We've had organisations such as the OECD and the IMF publishing scholarly papers arguing that greater equality is conducive to better economic conditions and higher average living standards. And I think this may well be the case under particular specifications, but I don't think it's true as a general proposition. Policies aimed at reshaping the income distribution through tax and transfer measures just for the sake of producing a lower Gini coefficient will be economically destructive, not to mention morally corrosive. It's quite a different matter to use the tax and transfer system to redistribute income to, say, the bottom 20% of the income distribution and thereby limit the incidence of absolute poverty, the social safety net. Few people object to this, and as a society, we are willing to accept some loss of economic efficiency to achieve it. But let's be clear, this is poverty alleviation. It's not Gini coefficient management. Is there a case for going further than the social safety net? I think there is uh, a strong case for policies aimed at achieving widespread educational opportunity, social mobility, affordable housing, high rates of workforce participation, competitive markets, dispersion of market power, absence of crony capitalism, all of those things. And success in these areas will limit inequality, but it's also good economics. And this, this is a case of greater inequality and economic growth possibly working in harmony. But let's be clear, it's not the lower inequality that's producing the higher economic growth, it's the other things like widespread educational opportunity and, uh, and so on. Australia has done these things reasonably well, but there is always room for improvement. Um, and one problem, I think, is that governments uh, distribute net fiscal benefits, that is, uh, benefits in excess of the tax paid by individuals or households. They, they distribute these net fiscal benefits widely across the income distribution, above the 50th percentile, um, and the top 20% is left bearing most of the cost of this. And this is a point that um, is this, I'll put in a plug for a recent uh, policy paper that I, uh, Terry O'Brien and I put out. Um, and I'd encourage you to, to have a look at that if you're interested in the point that I've just raised about um, the distribution of net fiscal benefits across the income distribution. Thank you. Thank you, Robert. Um, and for those of you who don't know, that paper is called Voting for a Living, which might give you a sense of what it's about <laughs> as well. Um, let's start asking and answering some questions here. And I'm going to pick up on what Melinda was talking about. And that's the issue of the statistics of inequality and the perception of inequality. How much of this 
is the importation wholesale of arguments around inequality and wage growth from America and the UK. And specifically, the arguments around the destruction of economic benefits through trade, um, the fact that, that we're seeing all of these sort of rust belt states in America with no income, that that, that applies to Australia, that, that we don't have um, much economic mobility, that, that, you know, wages have been stagnant for decades. And I, I put that in context because I cited um, a, a study that was done in 2012 by a former colleague of mine when he um, worked at NatSEM that found for the three decades between 1980 to 2010 that the two quintiles that had the most uh, wage growth was actually the bottom quintile and the second bottom quintile. And the person who I cited that to couldn't believe that that statistic was true. Um, now, that might not surprise you, but that person was actually Tom, my boss. <laughs> so that perception that, that wage growth in Australia has been nil or negative for a lot of people for a long time, how much of that is just being imported from the US? Uh, look, it's, it's tough to say, but I, I think one of the things that... Um there's a couple of reasons why we did that survey and a couple of things that we that we sort of took out from it. And one of the things is simply, um, you know, we're the Committee for Economic Development, we're pro-growth, we're pro-development, right? Um, but everyone's grappling with why we can't get any consensus around reform agendas at the moment, right? And, and I think there's an overly simplistic narrative that says growth is good and growth benefits everyone um, and, um, and people should, shouldn't challenge it. And so what we're trying to say is, it's fine for all of us on the stage to talk about that and to understand it and to understand that growth is good, but that's not the, the sort of, you know, the, the experience or the perception of people in the wider community. So we wanted to go out and test that, number one. And I think what it reminds you is that while we want to talk about 27 years of sustained economic growth and what a fantastic track record that is, the thing that matters most to people is their lived experience right here, right now. Income growth has been really flat. You know, the interesting thing, I think Jonathan touched on it, um, it's sort of like when income growth is growing, I think people are sort of... When, when income and wages are growing, people are less <coughs> concerned about it, right? Because they can see themselves improving and whatever else. When it stops, it's sort of like musical chairs, isn't it? You were talking about your daughter. You know, the music plays, the music plays, everyone's running around, everyone thinks they're going to get a chair, the music stops and you haven't got your chair. Um, or all of a sudden, you don't like the chair you're on. And I'm not trying to be too silly about it, but I think there's, a, there's an element of that. And then, of course, we know cost of living... Um, for things that matter to people are really increasing. And so I think there's uh, a really big chunk of that. And I think there is a really big chunk of a lot of change happening at the moment and people wondering about what the future looks like for them and their capacity to, uh, to, to participate in that. Um, you know, the f when we asked people had they benefited, the answer was no. Who did benefit? Um, big businesses, senior executives and all the rest of it. Now, there's a certainly a point in time aspect to that, but that's what they see as happening and there's probably an element of truth to that. Um, we can debate whether it's right or wrong, but I, I think that's what they're, they're questioning and I think it's an Australian thing. I don't think it's a fully imported thing. Jonathan? Just pick up on a couple of points. There definitely is a dichotomy between the perception and what, what the facts are revealing and I think there's an obligation to understand why that is and part of the story is clearly um, in the most recent period there has been uh, low or even negative per capita income growth. Um, that's partly wages but it's also the very substantial reduction in our terms of trade which we've adjusted to. So 
there may be uh, a confounding of low wages growth with widening quality. That might be part of the story. Um, Robert, I think the, the interesting thing that Linda just raised was that people perceive the benefits have gone to a small number of, of high income individuals. And one thing that we often see talked about in, in the inequality debate is that focus on people at the very top end, you know, the ratio of their income to, to low income people and the, or, you know, Labor's policy they announced this week was they were going to force companies to disclose the ratio of CEO to average pay. Um, why do you think there is so much focus on ho a, a, what is a fairly small number of very high net worth individuals and very high income individuals? And do you think that's a function of a shift away from focusing on poverty and those in poverty to inequality, which allows you just to attack the rich? Well, certainly the last point, yes. Um, but I think the the focus is they're probably because they're, they're very conspicuous um, and uh, especially in a country that uh, has the tall poppy syndrome, you know, pulling down, cutting down the tall poppies, that's still alive and well in the culture of Australia. But um, of more substance, I think uh, probably there has been an increase in the share going to the to the very top, you know, we, we often look at the top 10% or 20% and that hasn't really increased, but probably for the top 1%, it may have, it certainly has in the US. And, uh, and you do have some uh, economists who argue that uh, you can tax that very top uh, slice of the income distribution more heavily without having adverse economic effects. Now, we're, I, I don't necessarily agree with that, but, but you, there are quite a few economists who would argue that. But uh, on your last point, yes, um, yeah, the, the focus should be on the bottom end and not on the top end. Uh, but we know the focus is so often on the top end, Melinda, and, and one of the things I suppose that that, that um, indicates is a view that this is a zero-sum game, that the only way that someone can get rich is to exploit the poor, to take income away from other people, and that, that because the share going to the top 1% or the top 1% of the 1% has increased, that has happened as a result of them stealing or, or taking that advantage away from other people. Is that a... I mean, uh, that's something of a caricature, but it's not that much of a caricature, is it? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'd put it that way, but I definitely think there's a sense that, you know, I think people struggle with with understand. I mean, I can say this wearing all sorts of hats. People struggle to understand, you know, the sorts of incomes that that people earn in these top jobs. There's no doubt about it. Um, and yes, they are very conspicuous. Um, and, and I think they just, they just don't understand it, right? And of course, there's a degree of resentment around that. And I think this trend, I think in your chart, Jonathan, you did show <laughs> income growth at right at the top, in the top, um, top 10, 10%. So pe people are seeing that. Um, and I think underpinning it is, um, a, a particularly when things are, when income growth is, is stagnating, is, a, a lack of ability to see where your opportunity comes from, 
um, and to, to, to be part of that or to, to even have a slice of that even at a, at a more modest level. And I think that's sort of what people are sort of hitting on and, and, and a bit of a, and I'm not saying it's right, but I think there's also a question about is this a bit more, are we getting to a stage where it's a little bit more winner take, take all, <coughs> um, which is what you're seeing in so many conversations, you know, Piketty's book or whatever, that, that we have a, a model now based on technology and, um, uh, you know, digital, digitization of um, economic opportunity that means that if you, if you start big and you, you just get bigger, if you start wealthy, you get wealthier. Um, and an environment when wages are stagnant, I think it lends itself to those concerns a little bit more. Jonathan, isn't that, though, the story of economic mobility that, that you present, that the very idea that, that people's lot in, lot in life is determined by their birth actually isn't that true for Australia? Well, I think there are, there are two types of mobility. The one we focused on is over a period of limited number of years, we call that life course mobility. Um, and that makes the point that when you see a slide like I showed, uh, where the top decile had higher income growth than all the other deciles, you can't interpret that as saying that they're pulling away from the rest of the pack um, because of that mobility. It's not the same people consistently in that top decile by any means. Um, I would also say um, that uh, it is not a zero-sum game, categorically. Um, what we have seen um, with 27 years of uninterrupted economic growth, again in that first slide, is higher incomes overall compared to other countries, and that is the driver of higher living standards. Now, you also made the point um, in, in introducing this question that it was the lower deciles that in the most recent period had the higher income growth, and that's, that's true. That's one of the reasons why in the post-GFC period we've seen a reduction in in measures of inequality. Um, if I can come back to a point that Robert made, um, when you uh, focus on, say, the top one percentile or sometimes even the top one thousandth, um, we looked at a little bit of this in the report, and I, I didn't choose to show them today because I think uh, those sorts of metrics can give you some insights on a specific part of the distribution. Um, but they ignore the rest of the distribution. So the point that's been made that you should focus on the bottom end of the distribution is an important one. But even supposing you do look at that top 1%, what we did is we did the calculations with the top 1% for the Gini coefficient, and we did it taking out the top 1%. It actually makes only a fairly small difference uh, to the calculated uh, Gini coefficient, which is ultimately the best overall measure of what's happening to it, the distributions of income. And I guess the point that I'd make out of this is there are all sorts of ways of cutting and splicing the data and you can pick um, one metric that gives one particular point of view and you can pick another that gives another point of view. And we wanted to avoid doing that. We wanted to um, take stock of what various measures say and come to some form of judgment overall. What does it mean? Um, and it's on that basis that we said that there's a slight increase in inequality. Now, others can say maybe it's more than a slight increase, and others may say, well, it's actually been steady overall. Um, but I think it is important to get those facts um, straight um, and to be clear on how the basis of that judgment made. Yeah. Well, we've focused a lot thus far on the top end of the distribution. Let's 
go down and, and dig into a little bit more around what's happening at the bottom end. So, Jonathan, you made the point in the report and in your speech tonight that there hasn't been a reduction uh, or a substantial reduction or increase in relative poverty. But one thing that we do find from the recent HILDA start of that is that there's been a 70% fall in the number of people facing absolute poverty in recent decades. And that if you start from the perception that relative income inequality, which is what relative poverty measures, uh, that hasn't changed, then you might suggest Australia's policies for the last 30 years haven't been that effective. If you were to turn around and say, well, we've seen a 70% reduction in absolute poverty, you might suggest that our policies have been very effective. Uh, I know that you, know, you don't want to pick one measure, but does the fall in absolute poverty indicate that you know, we may not have been doing fantastic inequality, but we've been doing pretty damn well on poverty? Well, we look at all measures of poverty. We look at relative, we look at absolute, and we look at ANCAT, which basically controls for inflation. And for sure, if you look at uh, ANCAT or absolute poverty, um, there has been a decline. Um, and we make the point in the report that um, uh, even within those poverty metrics, there is a lot, there's a lot of churn. There are people that enter and people that exit. Um, and that may be for reasons that are perfectly explainable by factors that certainly don't warrant a, a policy intervention. Um, so again, I come back to the point that when you interpret uh, these measures and then you sort of ask the following question, what, what does it mean in terms of a, a policy response at all, um, you really need to, to dig deeper um, and get a sense of you know, what are the deriving factors, what are the determinants. Uh, and then you get a much richer story which is focused on um, quite particular groups with often quite um, specific specific problems. Now, we didn't offer any policy prescriptions in the report. Our contribution was a very modest one, really just to set the facts straight and get, get a discussion. Uh, the, the I think it may be fair to say that some of the perceptions in the CEDA report is that its vision of inequality is somewhat darker, I would suggest, particularly around issues around education, um, issues around the workforce, gendered issues around the workforce in particular. It shows a vision that is not as positive as the PC one. Would that be a fair assessment, you think? I mean, in a way that's, in some ways, the way people are saying you should focus on the bottom end or where the problems are, I guess that's what we're trying to do. And very much from the perspective of not, um, as I said earlier, you know, trying to understand where we think we are and, and what are the issues that we need to be getting ahead of so that um, we, we can do better in the future. Um, you know, I do think that um, if you look at, um, you know, segregation at schools in terms of um, socioeconomic status, uh, that I think that is concerning. I think it's concerning if um, you know you're in a low SES school, and that actually does weigh on you in terms of the likelihood that you'll um, achieve the educational outcomes that you can, given the importance of education, particularly as we move into um, a world where skills and um, you know digital and IT literacy are really going to matter. So I think those things really are important, um, and and I think there's scope for improvement there. In the same way that the sort of postcode inequality stuff. We know there are postcodes, we know there are groups for whom disadvantage is, is, is entrenched, it's intergenerational, um, and it's multifaceted, uh, and it's costly, quite frankly, to the economy and, uh, and to society. And there are, I guess what we're trying to flag is that, um, 
yes, there's been progress in, in many ways. Yes, the, um, the approach to targeting benefits is, is, is working in, in, a, in an average sense and in, when you look at these numbers, but that there is a different approach that is needed if we're going to address these pockets of you know, entrenched problem. Um, and we flag some things like more place-based, more holistic, uh, localised solutions, which I think is sort of what um, Jonathan's sort of alluding to as well in terms of um, addressing this, this specific needs. I've got two more things I'd like to cover and then we're going to turn it over to audience questions. Um, Robert, specifically to your idea of zero net taxpayers, um, I think that is one area we have seen some focus in the media in particular, um, the Australian newspaper, but you know, not only in the media. Joe Hockey, for example, made a point to call them leaners in his lifters and leaners analogy. Um, your paper suggests that they might be voting for a living. Um, what is interesting, I think, about the cohort of people who pay zero net tax is actually that over time it has been steadily increasing um, and that this is despite a general increase in incomes, particularly when you account for transfers in kind through health and education. Um, to me, that almost seems like a policy for reducing inequality, transferring from the middle, the upper middle to the lower middle, from the top to the middle. I mean, isn't ultimately, if we're going to talk about reducing inequality, isn't that the idea, to transfer from the top to the middle? Well, that's one way to do it, but it's not necessarily the best way. And, you know, you can, you can get a lower Gini coefficient in many different ways, and that's one of them. Um, but you can also get it by redistributing from, say, the top uh, 40% to the bottom 20%. And I think that's, that's a more effective approach um, to, you know, to poverty, to, to, to uh, containing poverty, um, rather than uh, distributing uh, benefits so widely across the income distribution as the current system does. You know, we found from, from the, or the ABS found, I should say, we're just using their data, that um, even the, the middle quintile of the income distribution were net beneficiaries in average terms from uh, the tax transfer system broadly, broadly defined, as you said, including these in-kind benefits such as health and education. So um, on average, the first 60% of the income distribution is in that net benefit situation, and I query whether that that is right. Uh, I don't think it is, and and it's putting a huge burden then on the top 40%, and particularly the top 20%. I'll tell you a funny story, Robert. When I was at the Business Council years ago, uh, we wrote a budget submission where we called for a reduction in some of the family tax benefits um, for precisely these reasons. Um, and I was waiting for you to talk about the costs of all this, by the way, of money going into the system and money coming out and how much that takes to administer. But um, I, I won't name names, but uh, after the BCA submission went out, sort of calling for this reduction in middle-income middle welfare, um, I received a phone call from someone uh, on the coalition side of politics who told me, quote-unquote, that what I was recommending was un-Australian. I could have a guess as to who that was. <laughs> I think I've received a similar <laughs> communique. <laughs> Look, yeah, Jonathan, please. Just one point. One point on uh, Robert's analysis um, is that um, when you look at 
that cohort that are net taxpayers. It's similar to mobility. It's not the same cohort over time. Uh, typically, when you're young, as a student, or when you're old, that's when you're a net contributor. Um, but when you're in your working prime age, um, uh, then you're certainly a, uh, a net contributor from a tax, net tax point perspective, whereas when you're older or younger, uh, then you will be in the opposite sort of situation. So it's not the same group uh, um, over time. Um, in the chart I showed you, uh, looking at uh, the level of the Gini coefficient when you take into account the targeted tax system and uh, the in-kind transfers. We also have a chart that shows the allocation by decile for those in-kind transfers, and it is very much um, skewed to the bottom end of the distribution, um, which isn't to say that <coughs> one can do better in terms of targeting, um, but there are all sorts of other issues that are associated with uh, a highly targeted system lead to um, things like poverty traps or disincentives to, to work extra hours. It would be weird to talk about inequality and not mention uh, the book that has the distinction of being the least read bestseller of all time. <laughs> I think Kindle reported that the fewest number percentage of pages ever read um, just too long. <laughs> was, was Piketty's uh, masterpiece, so-called. Um, but I think in context there, a lot of scholarship that, that analysed his data said that the result that wealth always grows faster than economic growth actually really comes down to the issue of house prices. And that if you adjust for the increase in wealth, the result of, a house, of house prices, that his famous effect disappears completely. One thing that we have seen in Australia, and there's little question about this, is there's been a significant change in the issue around housing affordability. Um, how much do you think the issue of inequality, the issue of the, the perception that people haven't done well out of economic growth, actually really comes down to a problem with young people in particular buying houses? Jonathan, do you want to start? Then we'll uh, pass along and then it's over to you guys. I think it's probably more relating to issues of affordability of housing than um, sort of the distribution, the distribution of wealth, which I think um, you're, you're getting at. Um, I made the point that um, Australia actually ranks, um, um, in terms of other OECD countries, as having one of the more equal distributions of wealth. Um, and part of the reason for that is we do have a high level of uh, home ownership. Um, and so virtually all of the distribution has benefited from the, the rising housing prices. Another aspect of the more equal distribution of wealth is um, the compulsory superannuation scheme. So um, there's been a broader uh, distribution of um, returns from, um, from, from capital inve investments in capital. Um, I'm not familiar, more familiar with uh, this point made by Piketty, so I won't or has it any, uh, any further guesses on that? Excellent. We'll pass on to Melinda, but um, if you'd like to ask a question, please raise your hand. We've got a mic that's coming around, so we'll grab you on the way through. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I'd sort of alluded to the fact that we there is a chapter in our report that looks at intergenerational inequality, and um, this work actually tried to look at the different age cohorts, so not 
it, it's, it's not just a function of now you're old and wealthier and when you're younger you're poor, <laughs> right? Um, but it did look at different cohorts over time and actually showed that um, the, the sort of younger cohorts aren't doing worse off than the previous generations at their age. Um, in fact, they're doing better. Um, now, does that mean you can buy... The Senate was 4% for people in the age bracket 25 to 34 compared to something like 60% for those in 55 to 64. Yeah, but I'm, but what, I'm, what I'm saying, I'm not talking about if you're this age compared to that age, having <coughs> earned your income, I'm saying this cohort now compared with the same cohort 50 yeah. years ago, right? And the, the results are now chapter showed that actually they're not significantly worse off in the sense that, you know, they've, they're a poorer generation than previous generations, right? Um, but I will, uh, let me draw a line to, again, this sort of disconnect between how people are feeling growth. We asked people in the survey that we did, what are the things that most matter to them? And let me call out two. So uh, a secure, affordable housing, really important to them. So if they're concerned about that, of course, that's going to play out in their sense of equality, inequality, fairness, all the rest of it. And the other thing that they, the number one thing was around health, right? Now, let's talk about another cost that's rising that people have tremendous uncertainty around is, and you know, what you're getting for your private health insurance and all the rest of it. This all played out in our survey. So yes, Jonathan's, you know, PC's work has done a fantastic job in looking at consumption, which is really important. Um, and over time, that's not looking bad. But I think at a point in time at the moment, there are some things bubbling around that sit right at the top of people's interests and priorities that maybe, uh, you know, can point to a bit of the concerns that are, are flowing out into a broader conversation. Robert, any thoughts on housing? Well, I'm sure... Well, I know you do, but any you want to <laughs> share with us? I'm sure I don't have any uh, robust statistical support for this statement, but I'm sure that housing affordability is one reason for um, inequality taking hold as an issue in this country, um, even though it, it is not uh, an inequality issue per se. And I think uh, you can say this about a number of things. Well, we talked about it before, that inequality is being conflated with um, various um, issues that uh, are impinging on people's economic... well, feeling of economic well-being or security or whatever, and you know, low wage growth is one of them. They're not necessarily an inequality issue as such, but it's they've, they've all been bundled up into this package called inequality, encouraged, I might add, might, might add by certain politicians, um, but uh, I think that's what's happened, and um, certainly housing is part of that. Excellent. Okay. First question. Uh, Jeff Hogman. Um, a couple of things. There seems to be no problem with the community accepting high returns to talent in sports and in films and so on, but there doesn't seem to be any attempt much to advertise to the community that it's the same thing, the, the pursuit of talent which drives the high salary. But I don't hear any discussion of that. That's point one. Point two, it seems to have been absolutely clear for decades that poor schools are a real problem and are going to perpetuate poverty. And yet I don't see any real solid attempt 
to rectify the problem. We get our Gonskis, we get our Birminghams and this and that, but still we hear the schools where the classroom behaviour is appalling and continues to be appalling and so on, and nothing seems to be done. Can we explain why that might be? Well, thank you. Uh, I can't, I'll pass to the panel on the first question, but I will give you an answer to the second question. The CIS is right now engaged in some deep research about what it is that makes certain low SES schools effective. And as far as we can tell, no one has actually done an investigation that asks the question of how is it that some low SES schools generate good outcomes? Um, and it's a piece of research that's taken a long time to get approval to even start, but we're in that space now. And one thing that may interest you, because it certainly interests me, our criteria was schools in the bottom 25% of the SES distribution who score in the top 50% in NAPLAN. There is not a single high school in this country that met that criteria. Over to you guys on the first one. I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm looking forward to that research and, you know, I do think there's... I, I'm not someone who likes to say spend more money because that is going to guarantee you better outcomes. So I think there's a lot in, in that. On the on the CEO pay issue, right, um, everyone... Uh, let me explain it this way. I reckon everyone knows how hard it is to kick a footy like Buddy Franklin, yeah. right, because you try to do it and you can't do it, right? Um, I don't think people necessarily understand what a CEO role is and what it involves. Um, good luck trying to explain it. And can I tell you, I haven't met a single person who feels at all comfortable, maybe there's a few, standing up and trying to explain a, a, a wage that, that people, is inconceivable to them. And, and, saying, and saying that I deserve it, right? Now it's, <laughs> I just think it's really tough and we, you, you can try to do it, but the incentive for being the one standing up there saying these guys deserve it <laughs> is, is, is a tough gig. <laughs> Thank you. Um, in the 20th century, the, the single-minded pursuit of equality resulted in the deaths of over 100 million people and over a billion people who lived in extreme poverty and suffering. How many more times are we going to perform this ridiculous experiment? And given that we're now living through a period where we are not only forgetting the past but rewriting it, what do you think the death toll will be at the end of this century as we continue to repeat this ridiculous experiment over and over? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I can advise you based on the polling that we did of millennials, the likelihood we're gonna repeat that experiment is pretty damn high. Any other thoughts on the perils and evils of communism? Millennials broadly in favour is the, the upshot. Okay, why don't we um, go to the back corner and we'll come back down here. I think, I think it is just interesting to, to observe that um, um, even today Russia is probably one of the more unequal uh, countries in the world. And, uh, and I, I'd also and, add... And, and, it, and it was, uh, and as was the Soviet Union probably... I'd also add that capitalism and particularly free markets have been a strong force for certain types of equality that 
the desire to open up competition has actually given opportunities to people who were otherwise um, prevented from accessing that. And that's one of the reasons why there's been an enormous fall in global poverty because we've allowed people from the global south to participate in economic growth and development. Yes, no, of course. Sorry, we're going to lose Melissa. Thank you, Melinda. Sorry, thank you very much for your time. But I will, um, we'll take a couple more questions because I know there's a lot of people here who are keen to ask our remaining panellists. On the uh, CEO question, I think the general public would be more sympathetic to CEO uh, salaries if uh, it was more closely tied to performance. You can run a, a company uh, into failure and still get a, a massive uh, bailout. So there's a, a little, it's a perception that uh, it's a secured uh, employment regardless of performance. My question is a political question. Um, uh, historically, the language of uh, inequality was very much the language of the political left. Uh, it was the, the language of the working classes. Increasingly now, um, uh, populist movements are coming on the right and they're, and they're using the language of inequality too. And they're, they're aiming it uh, at, at the top echelon, they're aiming it at the, at the bottom echelon. Um, I'm just wondering if you can explain a little bit more why we're getting this sort of these economic populist movements uh, from the right. Thank you. Sure. Gents, I'm, I'm happy to have a crack at that one too, if you'd like. Um, I think what it comes down to in, in large part uh, is that, uh, and this is a failure of, of our side of politics, but our particular belief system in particular, and one of the things that we were just talking about was the fall of communism. And I think the perception and belief that, that those of us in, of, who are classical liberals was that when communism fell that we won the battle. Communism fell, we opened the world up for free trade, we saw this massive increase in, in wealth across every nation. It, it was one, this enormous period, in Australia in particular, you know, we saw this massive increase in, in economic opportunity and economic benefit and it spread across everywhere and we stopped arguing why it was a good idea to do these things. We stopped convincing people that it was worth doing, it was that trade and, and, and free markets were important. And when we stopped doing that, people started going back to arguments that they'd worked before. Trade has never been a popular idea. It's always been very contested. People on the left and the right have always said that trade steals opportunities away from people. We stopped telling people that that wasn't true and they started to believe the people who said it was. And now we have a situation where people, economic nationalists on Trump, who are arguing that trade's a zero-sum game, that if you don't have a, a trade surplus, you're somehow losing. And that's a simplistic argument, but it's, it's a believable one. And people on our side stop telling the right story. Yeah, please. And then we go here and here. I think you, um, you also can't underestimate the influence that the what we call the global financial crisis had on uh, on people's feeling about the the way market economies work and uh, what they're getting out of it and so on although we in australia didn't feel very much from the gfc um, they certainly did in many other in northern hemisphere developed countries um, and uh, and I think some of that sentiment has been transmitted here into a, even though the context is different. Uh, we have people like Piketty coming here and uh, 
Joe Stiglitz and so on, um, talking about inequality. So I think that that's one factor that's contributed to it. Sam and I'm a researcher here at the CIS and amongst other things I've done a lot of work on child protection in Australia. Um, that graph that was showed really is a triumph because it really to me it shows that we are a mass meritocracy except for that 700,000 people in the bottom who seem to be uh, victims of what we might call intergenerational um, poverty. I'd be amazed if there isn't a huge crossover between child protection and that 700,000. But I think it's important to understand what the actual problems are in those communities. And we need to use words like dependence. We need to use words like dysfunction. We need to use words like the breakdown of social norms. And I'll give the example. One of the uh, many astounding discoveries that I made is that over the last 40 years or so, which sort of more or less coincides with the growth in welfare dependence, truancy has re-emerged as a problem. And that's basically because in these sort of families, a lot of them with child protection concerns, the social norms are broken down and people are incapable of getting well-rested kids to school. Like most people in this, you know, I went to school, it was not an option, it was just, it just happened. But the norms have broken down, that's part. So I guess my question is, and this is to Jonathan, that language that I'm using is an anathema to a lot of people in the welfare, social justice. But if we don't actually focus on what's actually happening, we will have very limited chances of addressing the real problems and finding the solution. Well, I don't, I don't disagree with you there. My final point was that one needs to get a, a much deeper understanding of, of who these people are and what are the particular conditions. And typically, it'll be a combination of those uh, factors um, that uh, ones which are found uh, most predominantly among this group of entrenched disadvantage. Um, me mental illness or chronic illness um, can be important um, uh, drivers of this and um, um, in incarceration. We mentioned the point about schools um, earlier uh, and the outcomes of schools in low socioeconomic areas. Um, the PC, and I was uh, the commissioner responsible, uh, was asked to look at what was called the National Education Evidence Base. Um, and um, we found that there, there are a number of factors uh, that can lead to improved educational outcomes. It's not just um, you know, teacher quality. Uh, it is things like uh, tr tr truancy, for example. There are many things that... Um, uh, are not so easily um, targeted by, by policy uh, and they can be a combination, which is why they become so difficult to deal with because um, there's, no, there's no silver bullet. Excellent. We'll take one more question and I'll invite Tom to come and give a brief vote of thanks. So just there. Thank you. Uh, Percy Allen. Uh, do you see a push for compression of incomes in future uh, given the social sentiment that Melinda spoke about in the CEDA report. And I'm thinking also of two examples in the last week. One is the proposal for CEO pay to staff pay ratios to be published. And I, I noticed in the Fin Review just before that the head of Domino's Pizza, who's been singled out as having the highest ratio in Australia now, supports it. And um, secondly, the Hayes Royal Commission, um, which has criticised... Um, 
performance-related pay, and he seems to be calling for a public service culture to replace a sales culture in the finance sector. Gentlemen, any, any thoughts on the compression of pay um, issue in particular? I mean, I think one thing that we've seen from social media, and that's one of the things I think that drives Labor's policy on this, is that they know they can whip up an outraged mob on social media to, to and use that as a tool to bludgeon business into compliance. Do you think that this is one of the ways that we'll see um, the issue of inequality dealt with in the future? I think all of these examples are, are just that. They are examples and they, they're quite extreme examples. Um, if you look at the actual distribution of income in Australia, to be in the top income decile, I think you have to be earning over $150,000 a year. Um, but it has a phenomenal long tail to it. Um, and uh, these examples are those that are at the very end of the tail, like your elite sports people, um, or, or CEO your actors, of Australia or, Post. or CEOs. Um, I think the point that was made earlier is that there, that there is um, sort of a, a sort of a breakdown of, of trust, if you like, in terms of um, um, a, a, a perception that they haven't been able to, to deliver the goods and yet have been rewarded. And I think that was certainly something that. Uh, echoed around the world with the financial crisis. No one saw it coming, or no one said they saw it coming. Um, and the perception that those that incurred um, the biggest uh, consequences of it were not those, um, um, you know, that were in po positions of leadership in industry or, or in government for that fact. So um, I think it's, um, I think it's, I think it's there. I think it is something which is relevant to why um, there is this heightened um, discussion about uh, these particular examples. Um, but I keep on coming back um, when uh, you want to put this into a broader context. Um, um, it, it, it's not just um, those at the very top end of the distribution that are driving these overall trends. Um, they play a part, but they're not going to be the, the, the dominant drivers. Um, but they're highly visible, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why they, they do grab so much attention. Robert, any thoughts on Banking Royal Commission? One particular aspect of this that hasn't been explored in the inequality debate is the likelihood that restrictions and regulation on lending standards will contribute to inequality rather than remedy inequality because the first thing that will happen is that banks will stop lending to people in marginal circumstances like those at the bottom end of our distribution. Well, that's right. And, and likewise, you know, whether it be for housing or for small businesses, um, that effect could come in. Um, but uh, to take up Percy's question about um, compression, I think you can... You can look at uh, pre-tax, compression of pre-tax incomes or compression of post-tax incomes. And yes, I think there is pressure um, on, on both of them. But uh, I think uh, that pressure is not likely to be very successful in relation to pre-tax incomes. That's quite difficult to influence. But... Um, uh, governments have control of the, the tax levers and can 
certainly uh, affect a post-tax compression uh, more s with more certainty. And um, we see a little bit of that in Labor's um, manifesto. Um, and we see it in other countries. And we may, we may see more of it here, I don't know. I hope not, but um, we may see more of it here. Questions. I know we've got more. The speakers will be around for a little while, so please um, stay and enjoy our our hospitality and ask any questions you didn't get to. Otherwise, I'll turn over to my executive director, Tom Switzer. Thank you very much, Simon, and thank you all for being here this evening. Uh, I want to say from the outset that it's a great privilege to have uh, uh, Jonathan here, especially because Jonathan was the commissioner who oversaw the Productivity Commission's work on the inequality question. So thank you very much, Jonathan. Uh, we at CIS uh, place a lot of emphasis on economic liberalism, so we believe in reducing the size and the scope of the government, limited democratic government, and uh, not least uh, promoting productivity enhancing reforms that we believe stand the best chance of creating a new era of prosperity. Um, we, um, when this report, Rising Inequality, with the question mark, a stock take of the evidence was released about a month or so ago, we, like many mainstream commentators, took great delight and pointing out what we believed is uh, inequality, but not as widened as many of the conventional wisdom had, 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 had told us so. Uh, Paul Kelly, uh, a longtime friend of CIS, uh, arguably one of this country's most distinguished journalists, wrote in The Australian, the report punched holes in our debate about inequality, warning about its false prescriptions and saying the real problem is not inequality, but entrenched disadvantaged. Uh, Michael Stutchbury, the longtime editor of the Financial Review, took to the pages of the editorial page to make the point that um, economic growth has made everyone in this country, in every income group, better off. What this means is that quite aside from virtually no increase in headline inequality, insofar as there has been a slight rise, it is in the context of a society where everyone is much wealthier than they were 30 years ago. Uh, of course, Kelly and Stushbury, we believe, were right, but I think today we've seen from all of our panellists, Melinda, Jonathan, Rob and Simon, uh, in many respects they've been sounder in style and, and in substance uh, because we've had more time to flesh out the data. But Melinda made a very good point tonight. Uh, politics is all too often about perception, and there is a perception in the community that inequality has widened, and I think it is important to always remember that although inequality is a problem, it is a much bigger problem in the United States and indeed in many parts of Europe. Uh, there is a significant uh, school of thought that believes that widening inequality and wage stagnation in both, uh, in both the United States and especially in Northern England was responsible for the rise of Donald Trump in 2016, the rise of Brexit. We haven't seen that kind of dislocation in this country and it's, I believe it's mainly because we haven't seen the rising, rising inequality. Instead, we've had a long period of economic expansion. So thanks to Melinda, thanks to Rob, thanks to Simon, and of course, a special thanks to Jonathan. Finally, let me express my thanks to all of you. If it weren't for you, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> thanks to guests who come to our events. Uh, our next events uh, at the CIS are in October uh, with our scholar in residence, um, Jonathan James Bartholomew. James is a columnist with the UK Daily Telegraph. He's a former leader writer at the Financial Times. He's probably, for mine, the quirkiest, wittiest uh, writer 
in praise of capitalism and in critique of socialism. He'll be doing several events across the country, uh, in Melbourne in a fortnight's time, in Brisbane on October 30, and, and this will interest all of you, on October 22, he and my colleague Eugenie Joseph will be part of a debate uh, at the IQ Square at Sydney Town Hall, and the debate motion is, capitalism is destroying us. And uh, needless to say, uh, James, Eugenie, the CIS team are on the negative side of that motion. Um, so um, we hope to see you there. Please keep in touch and enjoy the festivities this evening. Drink, eat, and uh, please mingle with all of us uh, for the next half hour. Thank you so much for being here.